The following audio is from Sand Hills Community Church. More information about Sand Hills Community Church is available at www.sandhillschurch.org. We've been talking about Advent, and Advent has at least four characteristics that we celebrate. And to this point, we've celebrated hope and peace and joy. What are we celebrating this morning? This morning, it's love. We're celebrating love, and this Sunday looks back at the love God has shown us in the person of Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. So if you're needing a sense of love that you're loved, you have that. Okay, so we're going to be celebrating love. We'll be talking about uh, how that works itself out through Christ this morning. You know what would be great is if we had like some sort of video with scripture in it. Yeah, that would yeah tell we've us got more that prepared since Do we the have last that? couple of times. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's show let's that. Let's go ahead and show that. Psalm 103, 6-14 The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. All right, so uh, I want you to imagine that at some point during this year, uh, you get invited to a Christmas, well, not to a Christmas, you get invited to a party. And uh, you go to this party, and your friend tells you, hey, the party's going to be a big deal. And so you got to make sure you dress out. Um, everybody, when you're there, they're going to exchange gifts. You're like, uh, okay. So they're like, okay, go buy a gift. So you got to do that. Uh, so your friend comes, picks you up, and uh, you go, and you end up at this swankadoo kind of party. It is, it is something. You show up. Everybody's dressed nice. But, but here's the thing. Besides that everybody's dressed nice, and you can hear the music pumping, and it's good music, and, um, and there's great food, and there's great drinks, and everything's, I'm like, everything, there's a weird atmosphere. Like, when you're there, people are really kind, and generous, and friendly, and you're, like, you're really taken aback. Like, this is a weird deal. And so, as the evening goes on, and you're watching these people, you're thinking, there's something special going on here. And so, you go to the host of the party, and you say, hey, can I ask you a question? I really, this party's fantastic. What are we celebrating? And the host says, you know, I know we just kind of do this every year. I, I can't really remember why we do this. Like, so for me, that picture right there would be a picture of Christmas in our culture today. Uh, this idea that there's all these great parties going on, and there's food, and there's, there's friendliness, and there's a general sense of charity. And yet, it almost seems like people can't quite figure out why they're doing what they're doing. Now, there's probably no mystery to you as you interact with the culture, and there's a, a a real missing the big picture kind of thing when it comes to Christmas. But hopefully for us 
in the church, we understand the meaning of Christmas. I trust that we do. Um, uh, we know that the meaning of Christmas has to do with a child who was born in a manger, lived a sinless life, uh, grew up, was betrayed by his people, was uh, tortured, hung on a cross, put in a grave, and then on the third day walked out of the grave. That's the, the, the life of Christ in a nutshell. That is really what Christmas is all about. We know the meaning of Christmas was really captured at the first Christmas. And so if we want to know what Christmas is all about, we've got to back up to the very first one. And at the very first one, there was a proclamation by the angels. I shared this last week. We'll go to it again. And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is all about the idea that that we were drowning in the middle of an ocean with no hope in sight, and then suddenly out of nowhere, a boat pulls up and we get jerked out of the water and we're going to be able to live. Like that's the, that's the idea that a savior has come for us and rescued us from a horrible fate. That, that's what Advent means to capture. So uh, if you grew up in a liturgical church, um, you know what a liturgical church is? Uh, not if you've been going to Sandhills, right? So uh, liturgical church, let's just formal and orderly, right? There's, just, there's like prayers everybody says at a particular time. There's kind of a cadence. Uh, particular scriptures will be read regularly at regular times. So that's kind of how that works. So um, we, don't really, we don't really do that here. But if you were doing this and you were celebrating Advent, Advent always has with it certain scriptures. And so uh, it's part of the reason why like, the Jewish people with their festivals and celebrations would recite the same scriptures. They were teaching devices. And the same would be true in the church. The idea of love as it's shared during Advent would celebrate uh, something that comes from Psalm 103. So let's direct our attention to that. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. All right, so let's go back and let's look at that first slide for just a second. I love the idea that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, So when people think about God, you know, one of the frustrating things is when people presume that God is always cranky. Do you ever struggle with that? If I was to ask you God's opinion of you right now, would you say, eh, disappointed, not happy, you know, always kind of frowning when I picture him in my head. Like, that's not our Lord. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then I love the next part. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. All right, so there is this sense that, that God does get frustrated with us. He does get angry, but, but that's not always going to be that way. And he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's like an amen moment right there. <laughs> like none of, us, none of us really wants that, right? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, I love that. So for as high as the heavens are above the earth, like, so how, how distant are the planets? Like, yeah, a pretty fur piece, right? As we would say here. So, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. All right, now this is the thing that pops up in scripture repeatedly. You know, you'll, you'll hear about this love of God and there's a general love of God. There's a general grace of God experienced by all people at all times, just because we're, uh, we're created in the image of God and we're put in his creation. But there is a condition that shows up through Scripture that really the the fullness of the love of God is really shown towards those who respond to him. 
or in this case, fear him. And, and fear in this case is, doesn't necessarily mean uh, to be afraid of, although there can be an element of that. Um, but really what it means is uh, to, to respect. So th- this idea that his steadfast love goes towards those who really respect him, to those who've submitted to him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I had a guy in um, college that I would meet with every week, and he loved this verse, and he would quote it all the time. And he would ask me, he said, Jeff, do you know why God didn't say, as far as the north is from the south, he's removed your sin from you? And, and the idea is that you can keep going north until eventually, once you cross over, you'll start going south again. So there is some point where north and south kind of connect. But you can go as far east as you want See your perspective, far east as you want, and you will never touch west. And you go as far west as you want, and you will never touch east. And the idea is that this is what God does with our sin. He removes it so far from us that we're actually considered separate from our sin, our shame, our iniquity, all this beautiful stuff. So this is, this is a declaration of what the Lord will do for us, has done for us. And we know that he's done that through the context of his Savior. So the meaning of Christmas for us revolves around the idea of a Savior. Now, Hopefully you know that the reason we need to be saved, you could say, just to start with, is that we are sinful people, right? We are, we are people who have done things that God does not desire. The very moment you sin, you are stained forever. It's like, um, so when I was growing up, my, um, my sister had a problem. In fact, she was in first service. I should have shared it then. I didn't share the story first service, probably on purpose. But um, she would spill things like all the time. In fact, my mom and dad used to joke that they would give her a practice cup of juice just to spill that one and get it out of the way, and then they'd give her actual juice. Um, but I remember my parents, when I was growing up, they had put white carpet um, in a house that we lived in, including the kitchen. So, you know, this is the 70s. It was a different day. So um, white carpet in the kitchen. And back then, you know, you didn't buy the juice that was in the containers already. You used to mix it yourself. So my mom had made a big pitcher of grape juice. Uh, and so she had put that in the fridge. My little sister was, you know, tiny, and she'd gotten up before mom and dad, and of course she decides she wants some grape juice, right? So she goes up, she opens the fridge, and she's like, oh, grape juice. So she reaches up to grab this thing. Now, I don't know where I was at the time. I'm sure I got blamed for this whole thing, but either way. So she opens it, she comes in, she grabs it, and guess what happened next? <laughs> she decorated the brand new carpet that my mom and dad had, and my mom and dad were so happy. Uh, when they came out, because you can imagine, that stain was there for the rest of the carpet. Uh, that was just as long as that carpet lasted. In fact, mom and dad said right after that, they pulled it out and went back with something solid in the kitchen. Um, so here's the thing, though. You know, when you do something like that, you spill grape juice on brand new white carpet, it's ruined forever, and it was. Any sin upon your life is grape juice on white carpet, and it is ruined forever. And God will not receive in his, in his presence anything except a pure white carpet. So the, the problem is this. It's not just that you are a sinner because you've sinned. You were actually born sinful, right? That, that is, there is a stain that has been handed down to us from uh, our, our predecessors. And you were born in it, and now you just live it out. And so unless that's removed from us, we will never have an eternity with God in heaven. And so somebody has to take care of that for us. That's why we need a Savior. Because this carpet is so stained, there is no hope for any of us. And that's why Jesus came um, we should probably depart from the analogy. I, I was thinking about maybe making him a carpet cleaner or something, but I think we ought to just move forward. Uh, but the idea is we need, we need rescue. Okay, so this whole thing, not only is it new for us, can you imagine what Joseph and Mary were going through as out of the blue, the plan comes to them, right? So if you have your Bibles handy, go to this morning, we'll be in Matthew chapter one, and uh, then after this, we'll be in Luke. But if you'll go to Matthew chapter one for now, we'll be in verses 18 through 25. So turn to Matthew 1, 18 through 25. 
Now, I love the subtlety of Scripture. I love the idea of a man and a woman of humble estate uh, who, who aren't renowned in any way. They're not really known by anybody. They're certainly not famous. They're not wealthy. And yet God chooses to use them. It's a beautiful picture. I'll tell you right before service, the service, my nose started running crazy. So if you see me up here and ooze begins to go from my nose, uh, that's, that's why. You know, I probably should have, shouldn't have said that out loud. We are recording the service, so um, we'll, we'll edit, edit that. Actually, if you're, whoever's going to be doing it this week, uh, we're going to edit this section, edit this section. We're still editing, still editing. All right, we will start three, two, one. Matthew chapter 1, I love this. Go to verses, uh, start in verse 18, I'll read it for us. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, that when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right. So um, let's go back to the first part. So now the truth, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been uh, betrothed to Joseph. So let's talk about betrothal for just a second because it's completely different than engagement. Um, you need to go back a couple thousand years in Jewish culture. Now, obviously, different cultures are going to have different ways of, of doing what they do when it comes to marriage. So betrothal worked this way. First of all, the lady was chosen by the boy's family, all right? So ladies, get that in your head. You were chosen. You were selected. Forget this love mumbo-jumbo. You know, nobody falls in love. You know, you were selected to love, and then uh, you'll be put into this relationship. Now, because we know people had good relationships um, historically, not always, but they could. So this reminds me of this, that love is a choice you make in the context of your relationships, and so uh, that's, that's something that bears itself out. But... Uh, Here's what would happen. So when the parents came to you and they said, "We have, you've been selected. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be marrying, you know, Bill from down the street. And I hope you, you like him because he's going to be your husband forever now. So you're going to go down and marry Bill. So now you have to make an agreement. So they go to the courthouse or whatever it is, uh, their representation of the magistrate, and they go through a legal proceeding. And the legal proceeding declares you to be the wife of, of Bill in this case. So you'll be, you're going to be the wife. Now, here's what's really weird about this. You're considered his wife, and you are legally bound, and to break that relationship, you actually have to divorce, all right? That's how that works. You actually have to divorce, but you have not yet officially had the ceremony, the marriage ceremony, so you can't yet be physically intimate, and so if you're physically intimate, during the time when you're considered betrothed, you're actually considered husband and wife, but you have not had the ceremony, that's considered immorality, Or if you step outside the bounds of that relationship, even though you haven't had the formal ceremony yet, if you're legally bound already, then that would be considered adultery. So it's a weird deal, but they they just added a step in their marriage process. It's a step that we don't have today. So that's why when you look at scripture, and this is where it gets weird. 
you have this idea that, that they're only engaged, and yet if he's going to put her away, he's going to divorce her. And if you've ever wondered why that is, that's because of the marriage customs of the first century in the Jewish culture. Uh, so that's what that's all about. Um, so, you know, maybe you know this. So while they're engaged, uh, Mary gets a surprise visit from an angel. What's that angel's name? Gabriel. Good for you. Good for you. Much more alert in this service than last service. So um, uh, I'm not saying you're better. It's implied. Um, so um, when you think about Gabriel, Gabriel is the announcing angel. And so he shows up to Mary and he tells her, you know, Mary, you found favor with God. You're going to bear the savior of the universe. And so she's like, oh, wow. She, so this, this is crazy for her. And then the angel tells her, by the way, your relative Elizabeth is already pregnant. She's, she's also going to have a son. And she's been barren her whole life. And now she's going to have a, a son. And that son is going to be John the Baptist. Um, and so she leaves there to go be with Elizabeth. And so she, she takes off. She leaves. Elizabeth was in her sixth month. She goes up. She stays like you know, three months or whatever until she finally has her baby, John the Baptist. Uh, but something really peculiar happens. So when she goes to, to greet her, um, she, Elizabeth is like suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby in her womb leaps. Uh, and, and then Elizabeth knows that Mary is also pregnant. This is revealed to her by the Holy Spirit. And she's like, oh my goodness, so Mary is going to have the Savior. So they have this wonderful moment. It's great, uh, a great event. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But anyway, so she stays there. When she goes back, by the time she gets back home, she's in her second trimester, right? So this is where it gets weird, right? So somebody, I'm sure, comes to Joseph. Uh, hey, Joseph, uh, when, what you know? Mary's back in town, you know? Now, Joseph would be delighted. This is his fiance, right? So find out uh, your fiance's back. And then they say, okay, before you, before you go meet with her, I just, can I ask you a question? Are you like all prayed up? You know, like you where you need to be with the Lord right now? You know, and I'm sure Joseph is like, well, yeah, I'm fine. Okay, can I follow up with another question? Before she left, did y'all, you know, do anything together, you know, intimately? You know, Joseph would be like, I would never do that. I'm a godly man. No, we're waiting. We're going to wait till the ceremony. He's like, oh, okay, good, 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 good. Now we have another problem. Um, I know you feel that way. I'm not sure Mary did. Um, you might want to go see her. Maybe it'll work itself out when you guys see each other. And so certainly Joseph would have gone to see her. And when he sees her, oh, four months along, are we? And uh, so, and Joseph, Joseph's a good guy, a really good guy. The amount of betrayal he must have sensed, oh, I probably broke his heart. Excuse me. <laughs> I probably broke his heart. And so now he's got to go deal with this. And so what he resolves to do is he resolves that he is just going to, it says here, put her away quietly. Oh, that's what he's, gonna, he's like, you know, I'm a good guy. She obviously messed up, but I'm, I'm not going to be with somebody like that. I don't know how long she's been cheating on me or if this is just what they do with Elizabeth's family or whatever. But, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm out on this thing. And that's when the angel appears to him in a dream. Uh, let's go forward and look at verses 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, I need to take a little break. Can you hold it just a second? There's a Kleenex box right backstage. I'll be right back. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> ah. You want to talk about like publicly embarrassing. Yeah, how great is that? Okay, well, glad to be back. Feel much better. All right, 
says, her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. All right, son of David. Now remember, that's a big deal, the son of David. Now this, this means the promise is being fulfilled in you. That's the, re- the reference to the son of David. In fact, if you read Matthew and you read Luke, you will see the genealogy given that has taken us to Jesus. But here's something that may have struck you. When you read Matthew and when you read Luke, the genealogies are different. And you may think, well, how, how can this be the line of David when they're different in Matthew and Luke? Like, what's the deal? Okay, the difference is Matthew tracks Joseph's lineage. Luke tracks Mary's lineage. They are both descended from David. Now, you might think, is there going to be a genetic issue with the birth of this child? You know, like, okay, well, no, you know, God's worked this out. Also, that was many generations ago. We're going to trust there's been sufficient deline- uh, dilution of the uh, gene pool there that they, everything works out okay. But it's still going to be Jesus. It's going to be fine. Uh, but it does remind us of 2 Samuel chapter 7, which I shared last week. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so even the Jews knew we're expecting a Messiah. We're expecting an anointed one of God to lead us, to lead our country, uh, to be our Lord in, in physical form before us. So they knew a Messiah was to come uh, from the line of David. And uh, Joseph and Mary are going to fulfill this as they are also of the line of David producing this heir. And then he tells him, this is going to be Jesus. The reason his name is going to be Jesus is because he's going to save his people from their sins. All right, so Jesus, if you, if you think about it this way, is the, is the Hebrew word Joshua. It's, it's, the, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua. Uh, Joshua, or Yeshua, means salvation, or Yahweh saves. And so when you hear the name Jesus, it's literally a declaration, Yahweh saves, God saves. And so that's why he's going to give him that name. And obviously we know, hopefully, Christ was not his last name. It probably bears repeating. So Christ was not the last name. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one. And so Jesus Christ is is the idea that this is the anointed one who's the salvation of God, right? That's, That's kind of how that couples together. Jesus Christ uh, as a declaration of who he is, what he's going to do. Look at verses 22 and 23. All right, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, it is the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, I have uh, an ESV study Bible. I don't know if you have a, a special Bible that you uh, tend to study out of. I recommend the ESV study Bible. Great Christmas gift. It's not too late. Some of you are negligent anyway. Might as well get one. But um, so a no shade, I'm just saying. Um, but the, one of the things I love in there is that it, it makes this comment in the study Bible. It says that, that Jesus tells us um, what he does, right? Salvation, God saves. But Emmanuel tells us who he is. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, the God with us idea, the idea of Emmanuel, that's really significant, all right? So let's talk about why that's significant. We know that we're all stained, right? We're the grape juice on the carpet. So we're all stained. How do we take care of that? Is there any way possible for you to be good enough to outdo the consequences of the sins you've already committed? Right, I appreciate that. That's right. There's no way to do that. Because the myth that people live, it's a myth, this, that, that we're on some sort of teeter-totter or balance scale, that good outweighs bad, bad outweighs good. As long as my good outweighs the bad, I'll be okay. Okay, first of all, 
even if that scale were real, which it's not, you would still fail the test, right? Because we judge good and bad very differently than the Lord. But the scale isn't even there. The idea is this, that once you're stained, you're stained. That never comes out unless God totally radically does something different. Which means then, there is no, there's no sacrifice that is sufficient enough to eradicate your sin forever. God, knowing this, decides to offer a sacrifice himself. Uh, in fact, the sacrifice he offers is himself. This is the spotless lamb. This is his son, Jesus Christ. This is Emmanuel, God with us. The idea that the reason that's significant is because God in human form is absolutely pure, absolutely perfect. If he offers himself as a substitute, that will satisfy. And that will satisfy the wrath of God and, uh, and you can be forgiven. He is the one who is worthy to redeem. So while Joseph is getting an education on all this stuff, Mary is also getting an education. Go to Luke chapter one with me. Luke chapter one beginning in verse 46. Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 46. So um, here we are. This is when Mary and Elizabeth have met and the baby has leaped in the womb of Elizabeth. And then uh, Mary also is filled with the spirit after this occurs. And then she, she goes into spontaneous praise. And uh, here we have, uh, this is probably a title over yours. Mine says, Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. Magnificat, that's a nice liturgical reference there. So it comes from Latin, which is, and it's also going to come from the first um, line of this, uh, this canticle. So the canticle is the Magnificat. See, aren't you feeling like more formal now? Like if I tucked in my shirt, we'd almost be there, right? So this is, this is the whole thing. So let's read through this, uh, this song of Mary, as it were. Okay. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. All right, so this starts off, and Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's where we get the idea of the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. And I love the idea of magnification, especially the older I get. I love the idea of magnification. Um, There's a... there, there, there's a thing that magnification does. It, it makes bigger, more full, more easily recognized. So this is the idea. She's like, my soul does this. My soul magnifies the Lord. It's like, makes big, it reveals the Lord. This is an amazing thing that God and me interacting in my soul area. So my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, right? Because at this point, Mary knows she's carrying the savior of the world. Like, what kind of weird thing would that be? Can you, as a woman, have you thought about that? What would that would be like to carry Jesus as your child? Like, totally crazy. So anyway, uh, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's looked on the humble estate. Does, did Mary just say, God has seen how humble I am, and therefore he's using me, right? You know, like, when you articulate it, don't you lose it? Is that, isn't that one of those things? So he's looked on the humble estate. Okay, well, the good news is it doesn't mean that. She's not proud. Um, what she means by humble estate is God has looked at me and I'm a nobody and I'm dirt poor. Like I'm a nobody with nothing and God still chose to use me. 
Now, we, we look at this and we just say, that's, that's remarkable. That's the favor of God bestowed upon Mary in this circumstance. But, but I don't want to miss something here that's really important that's, that's, um, that would carry over into us. That is that the, the conceptual, conceptually, the way God will work is you don't have to be what the world would call significant to be used by God, right? And so if you've ever been going through life and you feel like, you know what, I'm just, I'm just a regular person. There's nothing really outstanding about, you know, the way, I mean, like, I'm not saying I'm a bad person. I'm just saying, you know, like, I'm not on TV. I don't make a ton of money. You know, I still struggle in life. I'm just a regular kind of person. Well, let me just encourage you in this way. That's exactly the kind of person that God loves, right? There's no, there's no, no such thing as a nobody in the eyes of God. God delights in taking people who the world would consider insignificant and making a declaration of significance upon them. With Mary, he did it through his son. With us, he does it through his son. A little bit different context, but uh, the idea carries. So here she is in this humble estate. And I love, let's see, verse 50 here. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. All right, this goes back to the idea of the conditional love of God. There's, a, there's an element of the love of God that only certain people have access to. In this case, again, those who fear the Lord. Reminding us again of what we saw in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 14 says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the declaration of the multitude of angels. Among those with whom he is pleased. So again, a conditional idea. Those who fear him, those with whom he is pleased, that there's this conditional thing. So here's the, the condition. The condition is this. At some point, we all have to submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have, we have to put our belief in him, put our faith in him, that, that he is indeed the savior of the world, sent by God, Emmanuel, God with us. He lived a life that satisfied the wrath of God, wrath of God through his death and his resurrection, so that now those who put his, their faith in him will find forgiveness forever. That's the condition. That's the love of God. And uh, this is what Mary is processing. And then she says this, verses 51 through 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. All right, so three things going on here, the proud, the mighty, and the wealthy. Now, as we think about that, like if I were to ask you, are you a proud person? Now, there's an element of that that's not all bad. You're like, well, you know what I am? I'm proud of my life. I'm proud of my family. I'm proud of my friends. I'm proud of my job. You know, whatever. You got this kind of pride there. Or if I ask you, would you consider yourself mighty? You're like, I don't know if I'd use the word mighty, but I'm confident and I I have capacity. And, you know, yeah, yeah, I consider myself. Or if I say, are you wealthy? You you say, well, compared to the rest of the world, absolutely wealthy. But there are even some of us who sit in this room who would say, yeah, well, even among my peers, I would probably be considered, you know, wealthy. So does it mean then, if you have any of those things, you're automatically separate from the love of God? No. But the implication is there's an element of pride, might, and wealth that does separate from the Lord. That is, you can get to a point where you begin to put your confidence in those things so much so you no longer realize your need. So this is why when Jesus came, there, there, were, there was a couple of groups of people that were particularly responsive to Jesus. Do you remember what they were called? Jesus had particular favor among tax collectors and sinners. Right? You know why? Because they knew they were sinful. No doubt whatsoever. There is something about knowing you're sinful that when the need is there, you're, you're, you're all in if, if there's escape and there's hope. Let me phrase it another way. Um, I, I'm always surprised when I share Jesus with somebody and they don't want to respond. You know, like, like I, just, I just told you 
that God loves you so much, he sent his son. If you will put your faith in his son and his finished work on the cross, you will go to heaven forever when you die, and he will help you in this life. Do you want to do that? And they're like, ah, I, don't, I don't know. I'm like, that's for you. Like, that's for everybody. That's not just for me. That's a, that's a world thing. That's not a me thing. Well, I don't, I don't know. Like, why would you not want this? But you know what's funny? I never get that kind of response when I go visit somebody in the hospital who's dying. You know, when I go to the hospital and somebody's dying, I mean, they could have been an atheist their whole life. But when I show up and say, hey, you mind if I talk to you a little bit about the Lord? They'll be like, yeah, what's up? Be glad, be glad to hear. You know, there's something about a teachable moment. And so the idea is the opposite of these things. So let's take um, the proud. When you've been humbled, you ever, had, uh, you ever had your sin exposed in front of other people? You've been cruising along and, and kind of hiding it, kind of doing stuff that wasn't known, and then suddenly it comes out. And when it comes out, it comes out in an embarrassing way. And your friends, family, uh, even your community, your work, whatever, it, it comes out uh, that you have made some bad choices, and now you're publicly embarrassed, right? Like, can I tell you, there can be a grace in that, that, that you already knew you weren't what you portrayed yourself to be, but now you've been caught. But the great thing about being caught is now you can deal with it, right? And so in this case, it's those who've been exposed that when God comes along and says, would you like to be forgiven for that? Like, yes, I would. I hate this. I hate what I've done. Like, great. I can work with that. Or, or the poor. When somebody's desperately poor and you say, you know what? God can take care of you. Would you like that? You're like, yes, I would totally love that. So the, these things that Mary's highlighting, the pride, the mighty, and the wealthy, th- this idea that there's a counter to that, that Jesus can elevate those who realize that they are in need. Because these things, uh, pride, might, and wealth, can insulate us from the actual need because we will perceive that we have no real need. And that's what Mary's identifying, that these things are all different now for those who are the opposite of those. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. That is, Israel couldn't save themselves. They were desperately in need of God to do the work. And so God did the work that they could not do on their behalf. And then verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So now not only is Mary aware that there's something God has been doing historically through the line of David, but she says, you know, it even predates that. Like from the moment God chose his own people, when he showed up to, as they would call him, their father Abraham. So if you remember, God appears to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a people through you. I'm just choosing you at random, just like he did with Mary. I'm just choosing you. I've selected you. Through you, I'm going to make uh, a people for myself. So to Abraham, he made a threefold promise. And I, I sum it up this way, that he's going to give him a people, a place, and a position. Now, the people through Abraham were going to be the people of Israel. And the place was going to be what we now call the country of Israel. And the position was going to be that those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. So a people, a place, and a position. But that's a dual fulfillment promise. That it wasn't just Israel and the country of Israel and the the blessing and Christian of that, but there was a final fulfillment of that, that the people were going to be the people of God. And for us, the people of God in Christ. And and the position that this place you're going to live in, the, the place isn't going to be the country of Israel. The place is God's kingdom, that we would have a place physically in his kingdom when it's fully revealed. And then the position is still true, that those who step into the blessing of Jesus as we articulate it, they're going to step into blessing. But those who reject that, they're going to find themselves cast away from the presence of God forever. And so this idea is still fulfilled. And so Mary thinks back. She's like, oh my goodness, what you're doing through me now, pregnant with the Savior of the world, you started way back then. And then she's probably processing, like, and now I'm of the line of David, Messianic promise, like all these things are fitting together. And so her, her song kind of sums up the whole idea of what God has been doing uh, historically through all of time. So now let's think a little bit about 
Christmas for us. Now, Christmas for us, you've probably already been to a bunch of Christmas parties. In fact, I don't imagine you're going to go to any more, probably. It's, it's really just too close at this point. Um, but, but one thing I would love for us to do is to recapture at our work parties, at our neighborhood parties, this idea that, that what is going on here is really significant, and it may be that your host has forgotten. I mean, I would love to have you be at a work Christmas party, and um, whatever they would call it, a holiday party. And, and just to hear you say in, in public, you know, I'm so glad we're here celebrating the birth of Christ. Now, listen, I already know that would go over like a lead balloon, but it would be true. Like, literally, that party would not be happening if Jesus had not been born into the world. Not like that. And these decorations and all the stuff that we do, they've been sanitized, so to speak, of their Christian connection, but they wouldn't be there if there wasn't one. So I would love for us to reintroduce that. But I I get we can't reintroduce uh, the idea of Christ to every situation, every party. It's just not always appropriate. But in your home, it can be, right? So so one of the things we've determined to do in our home as far as a a practical application of this is that we want to make sure that we introduce Jesus into our Christmas time. And I don't ever want my kids to forget what we're really doing or what this is all about. Uh, So the, the two main places you find the Bible story, the Christmas story, are Matthew and Luke, Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. Now, you could argue that John 1 is also the Christmas story. And in fact, if you really want to shake your family up, just, just read that. But, um, but Matthew and Luke would be two ways to go, Luke 1, Matthew and uh, Luke 1 and 2. And so what we do is we sit down and we read those on Christmas morning, and, uh, and then we will pray together before we open our presents. Um, but there's another tradition that we do. We'll go to our um, biblically inaccurate nativity, and then we will... Uh, remove from it baby Jesus, and then we will wrap baby Jesus on Christmas Eve, and then we will hide baby Jesus in our house. And now I, I have, the kids are supposed to find baby Jesus Christmas morning. Now my kids are in college. They're still looking forward to finding baby Jesus. They're just, they're just <laughs> this thing that, we, and we wrap him up. So they gotta go, they gotta find out where he is, and we really just kind of have fun with that, sitting back with our coffee. In fact, I've actually debated about not hiding him at all, but keeping him in my pocket. You know, just... <laughs> It just buys you that extra 10 minutes you need on a Christmas morning, you know. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I, we, we've been hiding him, and then we'll, we'll help him if they get totally off. But anyway, they find baby Jesus, and then unwrap baby Jesus, and then we put him back in our biblically inaccurate manger scene. And so, but, but the idea is that, that this is what Christmas is all about, finding Jesus. That's what we want our kids to know. And, and if there's any way that this can communicate that to them, then I feel as a parent that this is, this is something I want to do. I remember Joshua. You know, this goes back to the Old Testament. So Joshua was at a place where he was leading Israel. And Israel was really struggling with whether or not they really wanted to follow the Lord. And finally, he just stands up one day and he says, you know what? I realize this. I don't even care where you all end up. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And I just feel as like a, a dad, like that's the flag I've planted. You know, like I, I can't fix the world. The world's broken. I, I was broken and rescued from it, praise the Lord. Their broken can still be rescued from it. But wh- whether they do respond or not, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. This takes us back to the whole purpose of Christmas. We talked about it earlier. But let me take you to a verse we always quote, but I'm not sure we always connect to Christmas. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let me pray for us. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy demonstrated through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we know that we are completely unworthy as recipients of your grace. Uh, And we cannot save ourselves. And we thank you so much that you sent a Savior for us, that you stepped into this world as Emmanuel, God with us. 
and offered yourself as a sacrifice on our behalf so that now those who believe in you, those who fear you, will find forgiveness for their sins now and forever. Lord, you are too good to us. Thank you for the gift of your son in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And for that Savior born in the town called Bethlehem, it's not the town that was righteous or holy, but it is our Savior. So that's what we're going to stand together and sing um, on this last Sunday before Christmas, before we head out. Um, So we invite you to do that with us. Thank you for listening to audio from Sandhills Community Church. Feel free to share this with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information, please visit our website at www.sandhillschurch.org.